Hey all, welcome to Geek Freaks. I am Frank, and today we're joined by Jeff Zenalotti, writer of Accidental Renegades. How you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. Happy to be on it. Oh, I appreciate it. Jeff, this is such a cool comic book you got here. Can you break down kind of the story, the idea behind Accidental Renegades? Okay, well, Accidental Renegades is, is kind of, you know, my answer to, to what I want to see in comics. It's a 36-page manga-inspired comic book. It centers around a team of bumbling, superpowered mercenaries who unintentionally ignite a global revolution. It really kind of asks the question, like, how do you stay out of the public eye when you unwillingly become the most notorious people around? And I really want to kind of take the idea of superhero tropes and kind of invert it or turn it on its side to give the fans something that they haven't seen before. I really like the on your guys on your uh, description for this Quentin Tarantino, the A Team in One Piece, while on shrooms. I mean, it fits perfectly, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, some of the comics I'm fans of, you know, things like Umbrella Academy, Saga, yeah. um, Next Wave. You know, they're really irreverent, and I really tried to capture a lot of that in this work. That's the golden term around here. If you mentioned Saga, we are on board. <laughs> 100%. What else inspired you into this? Because this manga, it's very bright. It's beautiful. And, and it, you know, it's if you've read manga before, you're going to be a fan. What, what else inspired you? Well, I, you know, I've been a comics fan pretty much my entire life, for at least as long as I can remember. And like a lot of people, I kind of went through a small, you know, comics divorce when I got a little bit older and, you know, job and family and stuff like that. But I came back into it. Um, I find that the the more I read comics, the more I tend to gravitate towards things that are a little bit off the beaten path. So if you look at a lot of the artists that I really like, it's people like Umberto Ramos and Chris Bachelow, Joe Madureira, um, Scotty Young, people that have an art style that is a little bit eclectic, um, in some cases polarizing, like some of my favorite artists, people just flat out don't like because they're so stylized that it can turn some yeah. people off. But I really love how they take chances with a lot of the things they do. I feel like that kind of naturally transitioned to an appeal or I guess an appeal or, uh, uh, you know, an appreciation for manga. Been reading manga probably for about five or six years now. And one thing that I find fascinating about it is the chances that the mangaka, that the writers and artists take with their work. I know that that manga has a lot more of a cultural wide, you know, wide cultural appeal in Japan. And I think that makes these creators feel comfortable to take those chances. And that's why you have mangas that are, you know, selling boatloads about things like cooking and ice skating and basketball and, you know, things that Western comics are slowly catching up with, but are a little bit behind the style, the, the energy and the designs. I mean, there's, you know, chainsaw man, if you're familiar with manga, it's a little guy who's possessed by the spirit of a chainsaw. Like that is the type of thing that, that, would be off the beaten path for a Western comic, even an independent one. And for, for manga, it's not only, you know, accepted, it's celebrated. So I really kind of embrace that, that level of energy and, and laying it all out there. I'm an independent creator. I have a day job. This is my chance to get it right. And I'm going to leave, you know, nothing, nothing to chance. I'm going to put it all out on the table, crazy ideas and all just going in. And that's kind of where the description of it being Quentin Tarantino, One Piece, and the A-Team while on shrooms, because I want to give the people something when they open this up that they're like, shit, this doesn't look like anything I've really seen before. And if I do that, I've kind of hit my mark. Yeah. Over in Japan, the consumption of manga is, is through the roof compared to us reading comic books. Why do you think that is? And how are you trying to make sure that the Americans are, are grabbing that through your book? Well, I mean, I think it's a cultural thing, right? And I mean, yeah. not being an expert on Japanese culture at all, but understanding a lot of the differences. Marvel and DC movies and some television shows are, are getting widespread appeal here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of people are flocking to comics. Comics are becoming much more popular. I read comics back in the day when it was like something you couldn't really admit, you know, especially in, in a public yeah. high school. 
because you'd be vilified <laughs> for it. I mean, and I would go to like 7-Elevens at night and buy my comics off the spinner racks that were in convenience stores and gas stations because you could back then. And because it was a way to keep from being seen, you know, and ruin your, your social status, right? But I loved yeah. it. So I continued to do it. Now that's not, I mean, I, I'm a high school teacher now. So many kids walk around with comic book t-shirts, manga t-shirts, manga sweatshirts. So it's it's definitely has much more of an appeal. But I think when you compare it to the appeal in Japan, where historically manga creators are referred to as sensei, which is like a term of, of endearment and respect that is only given to certain positions in Japanese culture. You know, they have statues in many cases erected in the towns they were born in or lived in. You don't, you know, as popular as Stanley is, I don't think there's a Stanley statue, you know, in you know, we anywhere in New York. Yeah, I don't think there is anywhere in New York City. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there is. But, you know, a lot of the most popular mangaka, they have amusement parks, they have theme parks, they have, you know, it just, it has really kind of inculcated itself into everyday Japanese life in a way that it really just hasn't fully, I don't think yet in America. And I really do feel like when you have that level of acceptance, you can really take the brakes off and try some stuff because you know, it's yeah. going to be received at least somewhat positively and, you know, competitively, but positively. So I don't know if it's necessarily a problem we can fix. I'm not sure if it's even our problem to fix, but I think as independent creators, we are trying to, to close that gap a little bit. And that's that's a noble thing to do for creativity is to push the medium to the next level. And I think a lot of independent creators are doing that. And I'd like to, you know, eventually have myself included in that conversation as well. Definitely. Yeah. And and I it's a wonderful culture to try to emulate in a lot of ways where you see them take these chances and stuff like that. We've talked to other manga writers and the freedom that they have over there to just like, hey, give it a shot. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it's rarely that nobody will read it. Right, right. <laughs> it's nice to see. It's really good. I really like your story that you have here. Why did you want to tell this story to others? Well, so I told a, a previous story. This is the second book that I'm officially working on. I did a, a one shot that I put out for free comic book day in 21. And it was something I always wanted to do. And, and like so many creative people, I always made excuses. I wasn't ready. I'm not good enough. I don't have the right equipment. There's not enough time. And the pandemic happened in 2020. And I, I kind of, that was like my, my epiphany where I said, at the end of this year, I'm going to be a year older. I'm either going to be a year older having finally created a comic like I've always said I was going to, or I'm going to be a year older making more excuses. And as hard as it is to just start, I finally sat down and I just started it and created a comic book, got it out, got it back from the printer, got it in local stores, you know, here where I live for free comic book day. And that really kind of inspired me that I can do this. I can meet these deadlines. I can put a product out there that people will receive. Uh, learned a lot of lessons from that process. It was a lot of you know tough lessons, a lot of discovery learning as I went through it. But the story I told, while it was interesting, it wasn't it wasn't my it wasn't my story, right? It wasn't passion. I wasn't really invested in it as much as I could have been. This story, by comparison, is one that speaks to me because it it relates to a lot of my frustrations. It is, I say, it's me putting a voice to the things that bother me when I you know turn on the television or talk to my neighbors or, or whatever. It's those, those things that I see in my hometown. I see, you know, going around, like there's a lot of things that frustrate me. And one thing that is thematic in all my work is if you have power, you have a responsibility to use that to the benefit of others, right? That's just kind of my, my feeling. It was relevant in the first book, which I did called the troublemakers. And it's definitely relevant in accidental renegades. The only difference is in this case, I talked earlier about the, the superhero tropes, in shonen manga and a lot of Western comics, those heroes set out to be heroes, right? That's their goal. That's the part that's driving them. It's almost the plot of their story. Accidental Renegades is different because this is a group of people that did not want to be heroes. They did not want the power, but they suddenly had it kind of thrust upon them. The more I think about it, the more I think that that's relevant because haven't we all kind of been in a situation where for circumstances outside of our control, we were asked to grow up quickly. 
We were asked to yeah. take more responsibility than we felt like we were ready for. And we had to rise to that occasion. So it kind of is a way for me to express some of my frustrations with things I see. It's also a way for me to connect to a lot of people that are in situations where they're being asked to grow up fast. They're being asked to, to fix problems that they did not create. And they're being asked to basically represent something that they never asked to represent. So I think a lot of people can relate to it, if only for those reasons. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of people that are relatable here. You have a very uh, diverse cast of, of heroes here, and there's a lot of people to pick. Is there anybody in particular that you really, is your passion project you really wanted to share with the uh, world? That's a tough one. So, you know, I do I do most of the jobs on the book. I do the the writing, I do the art, I, I do the lettering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I it's kind of manga, so there is some color, but it's really limited. It's mostly black and white and screen tones. Um, so it's really, there's two questions. It's the character that I prefer to write, and then the character that I prefer to draw. And it's tough because, you know, there's a character called Eclipse that that is featured fairly prominently in the first issue. And he's probably the most fun to draw just because his appearance, you know, he's got long hair, he's got a long beard, um, you know, so he creates a lot of visual opportunities to do some cool things with him. Um, his power set is also an interesting way that I can kind of mess with anatomy a little bit. So that's fun to draw. I definitely have a mm -hmm. lot of fun, you know, putting him on the page. The writing, though, um, there's a character called Mecca who's, you know, been through some some problems in his life as well. But doesn't ever let him, you know, get him down. His his disposition never changes. He's a very much glass half full type of person. No matter how many times he gets beat down, figuratively and in many cases literally, you know, it doesn't really mess with with him. And he's a lot of fun to write because, you know, as I get older, I get a little crankier. So he becomes like my, you know, me trying to represent myself better than I am sometimes. So he's a challenge to write, but he also kind of keeps me grounded as a human being. Because I'm like, all right, if, you know, if this fictional character can can maintain a positive disposition when everything is falling apart, there's no reason why I can't just keep my mouth shut during this, you know, 30 minute, you know, staff meeting I have after, you know, after school today. So it's, it's interesting because the writing and the drawing are two different sides of the same coin, but they both kind of bring with them their own, you know, little preferences. I like how you're creating your own role models here. <laughs> right. That's pretty good. You know, I, it's, you know, if, if my, if I can't be a good person, maybe the people I create could be good people. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It works. It works. Have credit. <laughs> so you're, you know, as a writer and and somebody who's also the artist on this project, there's probably some duality there. Has there ever been a time where you wrote a character, then you drew them out, you saw something that you wanted to change, so it you changed then how you wrote the character and vice versa? Absolutely. And and this story, although it's just coming to fruition, you know, currently, it's been kind of going around for a while, and the characters have really changed a lot. Most of the characters are relatively the same as far as their their character, you know, their their character name and their power sets. But their personalities have changed a little bit. You know, I wanted to kind of represent, like you said, not just a diverse cast in appearance and power, but a diversity of perspective. I love team books and, and I, maybe just because it's what I grew up with, you know, X-Men and stuff like that. I've always kind of leaned towards team stories. I find like you read a book like Batman or, or you know, Spider-Man. It's a great book, but you're really only getting that main character's perspective. In a team book, you tend to get more perspective. They're looking at the same problem differently. I do what I can to try to create a story that people can relate to. And I feel like diversity of perspective allows more people to connect with someone. So I do find that as I go through the story, sometimes I'll, you know, ramp up a story or ramp up a character's perspective or maybe, you know, tamp it down a little bit so that it keeps the tension between the characters, but keeps everyone still relatable. And I did have a character who was maybe a little bit too abrasive at first. And I'm like, you know, this character is supposed to be frustrated, is supposed to be, you know, that grumpy person, but I'm borderline making this character unlikable. And right. I'm trying not to do that. You know, anyone can can identify with just having a bad day and taking it out on someone else. 
but no one can really identify with just being a terrible person. So like, I try not to incorporate a, a protagonist or a group protagonist that is just unbearable to be around. I don't think that's interesting. So, and it didn't help the story. And that's, that's really the main thing. If it serves the story, it will move forward. But if it can be done better than that, that's what I try to do. Yeah. You have such a wonderful cast here with Spitfire and Kali and Eclipse and, and alike. You're also a teacher as your day job. And so also when you're thinking of these inspirations, is there ever, ever a time when you're at school or something like that and you're thinking like, oh man, this is a great trait to, to bring into my world or something like that. It's, it's got to be a chaotic world, but a lot of source material. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Like I definitely don't want, you know, my fiction to represent my reality too much, but right. I definitely, you know, interacting with a, a diverse group of students with a ton of different backgrounds, their interaction, the way that they'll handle problems. Because again, it, like a group book is, yeah. is written on a group dynamic. And you don't get a much more interesting group dynamic than, you know, a high school classroom. Like there's a lot of really interesting dynamics, you know, the push and pull of people interacting, especially when you give them a problem to solve and watching how they do that. There are definitely things that I don't necessarily take word for word, but I do kind of take the spirit of and realize that that could be an interesting way to impart some sort of tension from a situational perspective in the story. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to be a student of what goes on around me, but I also just don't want to, you know, copy and paste what I see because I don't necessarily know if that fits. Yeah. It's just interesting to have like this team book, like you're saying with all these different social dynamics and then high school where it's the boiling <laughs> pot of that. It's like, Hey, we're here. We go. Let's, this is something you can see uh, feed off of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I definitely kind of almost have like unofficial editors in my classroom. Cause I'll be like, Hey, does this, does this make sense? Like, especially, yeah. you know, I have, Characters that don't, you know, I have, uh, you know, black characters, I have Indian characters. So occasionally I will lean on those students to make sure I'm not, you know, completely misrepresenting something, uh, especially younger students who tend to, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, let's be realistic. In many cases, teenagers have their fingers on the pulse a little bit better than, than older people do. And, yeah. you know, I lean on my perspective. I lean on my experience in a lot of ways, but I also, I think I'm smart enough to know where I'm not smart enough. And I will oftentimes lean on students to be like, okay, now if a, you know, straight up, if a black character were to say this. Would that be, would that be troublesome? Would that be realistic? And, right. you know, these kids, a lot of them grow up in, in a harsh reality and they will be completely candid about it. They're like, no, you know, we would never say that. Or if we said it, this is what would happen. Or when we interact, this is how it goes. And you kind of, like I said, you have to be a student of things around you. And a lot of times, you know, I'm a student of my students, you know, and probably learning from them in some ways, as much as I'm, I'm trying to teach them. But yeah, I think you kind of have to do that. Otherwise it just becomes my story. And that's the, I think the worst right. thing for a group story to be. The voices you're creating that are much more authentic and yeah. believable in that case. Yeah, that, that, that's is, the goal. That's absolutely the goal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You spoke earlier about learning a lot of lessons moving from Troublemaker into this. What kind of lessons did you learn along the way? There's a couple from a just purely professionalism standpoint. Um, one thing that I've kind of found now with a, a crowdfunding campaign versus a self-publishing campaign is that you tend to be a little bit more lax, you, or at least you can be a little bit more lax when you're scheduling for a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo because you can determine, okay, I'm going to fulfill this by, let's just say, February. Okay, well, right now it's September. I got plenty of time to do this. But when I was doing the, the Troublemakers, that was going out for free comic book day. And it didn't matter if I put out the best book that anyone's ever seen. If it got back from the printers the day after free comic book day, it wasn't getting in the stores. No one was going to see it. So... I was like, all right, if this is the day I need to get in the stores, I need to go backwards. I need to get it to the printer by this day, which means I need to get the inks done by this day and the covers done. Blah, blah, blah. It's having that, that very you know, locked schedule and staying to it kind of is a thing that I think a lot of creatives struggle with being able to stay on schedule and hit those marks was something that, that 
you know, taught me that I can do that on a, and to give me systems that I need to basically follow in the future. So from a more planning or professionalism standpoint, that was definitely one of them. Dealing with local shop owners was something else I had never done before, you know, in a capacity of trying to sell myself in my book. So that that was a lot of learning there. You know, I personally, I don't have a certain, I, I don't have that salesman mentality. Like, I'm just not going to walk in and be like, I'm going to sell you on this. Like, I was like, yeah. hey, guys, look, I don't know if you're interested, but I got this thing. And, you know, tend to be more self-deprecating. <laughs> oh, yeah, I tend to be more. Yeah. Well, gosh, guys, if you're interested, like I tend to be more self-deprecating than it probably should be if you're trying to you know, sell someone on it. But that's just kind of like my personality. So I had to learn that. And then the other thing that was interesting was prior to the troublemakers, I had been 100 percent traditional art, you know, pen, paper, you know, pencil, ink, you know, all those things. Troublemakers was my first foray into digital art because, again, I had nothing but free time during the pandemic and it was something I wanted to try. So, you know, I purchased the equipment and the, and the software and I started working digitally. So I, I really didn't know all the things that I could do with the programs when I first started working and over time have learned how to make them work better, work more efficiently, highlight my strengths, you know, make me a quicker artist and those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. I kind of say it's like, I, you know, if you've been driving for 20 years, but someone gives you the keys to a Maserati. Yeah, you know, you'll be able to get it where it's going, but you might, it might take you a little bit of time to really make that thing do what it can. And that's kind of what I said, you know, I've been drawing for decades, but I didn't know how to make the digital programs do all the things it could do. And once I learned that, not only did my efficiency improve, but I think the quality of work also improved. And that I had to learn how to do that. Digital art, traditional art, that's a, that's got to be a tough transition in general. Uh, do you suggest people start to pick up on digital art quickly or or learn the fundamentals first? I, I think it all kind of comes down to fundamentals. I mean, you can learn fundamentals with digital art, but my personal opinion is that there's so many features and I use Clip Studio. I'm familiar with Procreate, but I use Clip Studio. There's so many amazing features that number one, it, it can kind of teach you cheats instead of the fundamentals. And I think you do need to learn the fundamentals. I mean, you need to learn anatomy, even though these programs have 3D models, you can just put on it does help you to learn anatomy. It helps you to learn perspective. You you need to understand pers- you know perspective, uh, spacing, foreground, midground. You need to understand those fundamental things that will make the the digital art better. I would say you you know like anything else, you you kind of have to understand the basics before you can you know, crawl before you can run type of thing. But you can also learn the basics digitally. You just have to be disciplined to do it. But so I would never turn anyone away from digital art. I was anti digital for a while because I saw it as like cheating until yeah. I actually got into it. And I realized that it's actually, it's not cheating. Um, I mean, you can take shortcuts, but if you don't have the chops, the program is not going to you know, do it for you. It will help you do it, but you have to know what you're doing. And again, I'll use the car as an example. If you can't drive, it doesn't matter what keys I give you, you're going to crash that car. You have to be at least a decent driver to make those, those high performance cars do what they're capable of doing. And I, I think it, it's kind of the same with digital art. You can be the, the, best artist in the world and you'll do really well with digital. But if you just don't know what you're doing, digital art is just going to kind of be something you play around with and you probably won't stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting world. Yeah. I know that there's such a, a white, like nowadays come up, come up with artists are around the world. Yeah. And the commissions are across yes, the globe. Yes, nowadays. Absolutely, yeah. It's so uh, digital. It seems like it's almost easier now just because one guy in one country is working with another guy in another country. So, yeah. I mean, in the digital age, it, I think it definitely, allows a lot of artists and, and really, you know, for me, I wish I could do this for a living, but you know, I have a day job and I have a family. And one of my biggest hurdles in my own life is finding the time to, to spend doing what I love doing, which is, you know, creating comic books. 
Digital art does allow me to work a little bit quicker. And I'll use the example where if I had a piece of paper and a, a picture that had to fill a lot of blacks, it would take a lot of time to lay that ink down. And you know, if I, my hand slips or I spill the ink or there's an ink drop or something like that, I've almost ruined the whole page. That could take, let's say, 20 minutes. If I do it digitally, it's literally tap, tap, and it's filled. Like that took two seconds. And in those other 19 minutes and like 58 seconds, I could be working on refining my anatomy. I can, you know, make sure I get the details right. So I feel like you can be more efficient with your time. And if time is an asset you don't have enough of, like it is for a lot of people who do this as a second job, anything that can save time is only going to make you a more efficient artist. And I think for me, that's huge. And for anyone who collaborates with people outside in other countries, you want the artwork tomorrow. Again, it's attaching an email and it's sending to someone. You don't have to pray that it makes it in the mail. And it comes in one piece and you hear all these horror stories from like, you know, all the old creators where it's like, you know, FedEx or UPS lost the pay or it got, it got ruined in transit, you know, and someone spilled this on it. And now he had to recreate the pages and we had to call, you know, that is not really a problem anymore with digital art. And I think that allows a lot of people to, to be able to be seen and it, it challenges and it raises the bar for everybody else. Yeah. Well, that would be what a horror story. Also. Can you imagine you know, Jack Kirby and Stanley were yeah. across the country from each other the entire time? It'd be crazy. <laughs> but I will say, and actually you bring up a good point, because this is something that I do kind of lament, especially working digitally, is you read all the stories about the old, the bullpens, you know, with all these, yeah. you know, legends, all just, you know, whether it's Image or DC or Marvel, like literally just all their tables, they're playing music, they're eating sandwiches, they're eating chips. It's two o'clock in the morning. They're just jamming out pages. Like, I think those days are are pretty much behind us as creators. Mm-hmm. And I lament that. Like I never had that opportunity. It just wasn't something I had the opportunity to ever do in my life. But like, even now I'm working, I'm like, man, I wish someone could just show me how to do this thing. I can't figure out how to do with this. And like, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like looking in local papers, like, is anyone offering a clip studio tutorial? I'll go to like the learning annex because right, I'm like, right. I, I know it can do this, but I'm not sure how. And I bought the books and I did the YouTubes. But the amount I think that you develop as a person and as an artist when you're working in like uh, that sort of situation where you can literally spin your chair around and be like, hey, man, like I'm struggling with this. How would you do it? I think it, it just it creates such a, a diversity of styles. And because digitally, you know, you can be in Malaysia working with a, a writer in Detroit. I just don't know if we're ever going to have that. And I think it's sad that that because I, I can only imagine you hear the stories. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall, you know, when. I mean, name someone when, you know, Mark Silvestri and, and Liefeld and Jim Lee and, and, you know, you know, they're all just sitting there just jamming out pages together. Like, can you imagine yeah. what that would have been like? You know, and I don't the know if we're going to have that. Room. Oh, incredible. <laughs> like it, it would yeah. be like sitting in a jam session with the most amazing artists. And, you know, I don't think we're yeah. going to get that anymore. So that's, that's the downside of it, but it is what it is. Yeah. Like when you mean Rhapsody and you're just you're in there here in Queens, like, let's try some crazy thing out. It's yeah, exactly. like, that's gold. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. I guess you could do it through like a Zoom, but it just doesn't have the same feel it's to not it. The same vibe. Yeah, yeah. It just Even with podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. With the pandemic, we used to all, we used to meet in this studio, but now with the pandemic, we do it all live like this. Uh-huh. And it's like, there was a time where we'd have a couple beers and get loosened up and relax. And now we're just like, meet at this time, guys. Okay. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Vibe. Like I said, yeah. it does create a lot of efficiency. You know, I mean, I kind of joke around teaching virtually, which is what we did for a little while. I was so efficient because, you know, okay, while the students are doing this assignment, I'm going to run in the other room. I'm going to throw my laundry, you know? So all the things like I had yeah. to do after work, I got done at the end of the day. And I'm like, wow, like school's over. All my chores are done. I have hours, you know, but at the same time, nobody really learns when you, when you teach virtually, because there's so many distractions and it's so easy to yeah. not pay attention. 
So the human interaction part of it is just invaluable. And technology is kind of giving us a reason to get away from that. And that's great. But it also, like you said, it does have some downsides to, to people that probably benefit from being around other people. Yeah. A good way to meet other people is going to your local comic book shop. Do you have any intentions of bringing accidental uh, renegades to your, to the local comic book shops? Yes, actually I do. Um, and I'm still kind of, you know, figuring out how that works. You know, there's a lot of learning that I'm doing. I have talked to a lot of the local comic shops here about it. I offer a retailer tier on the Kickstarter. Yeah. So I am trying to get the, the word out there. The good news is that, you know, every local comic shop that I've gone to have been very receptive, especially, you know, of the troublemakers um, have been very receptive of opening up, you know, new people, you know, come around, sign books, you know, talk to our readers, that sort of thing. Um, it's been really great that they're able to do that. And I think that'll make things a lot easier. So the idea is eventually to get this book on shelves where people can go in and pick it up. That That's the level two goal. And we're probably in like level 1.3 right now. Yeah. Oh, you get there though. Yeah. How could people get this book right now though? Where, 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 where can we send them? Okay. Um, well, it's uh, it's currently Kickstarter is going to end shortly, but you can go to um, zcomicsoriginal.com. Once the book comes back from the publisher, we'll be offering it on the website. Um, you can also look it up on social media. You've got Instagram and Facebook is Z Comics Original. Uh, Twitter is the letter Z Comics Original. And again, the website is, is zcomicsoriginal.com where you can see not just some sequential art, but you can also see some fan art and some original characters that were designed for this story and a couple others. So there's lots of opportunities for people to kind of get immersed in what we're calling now the Zetaverse. The Zetaverse, yes. I'm in. That's yeah, someone, someone coined that. I'm like, I got I to keep that. You know, it's, yeah. it has I've, to be. <laughs> new tattoo. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> Zetaverse. Um, okay, so once they consume this book, of course they're going to want the next one. Any any ideas for those people looking at that second book? Yes. Yeah, so right now, and one thing that I, I kind of say when I, I talk about it being manga inspired is one of the things that I really like about manga is that they're self-contained stories. Now they may go on for yeah. hundreds, you know, a thousand chapters, but almost from their design, they have a, a more or less definitive endpoint. And Accidental Renegades does too. But but like a lot of manga, it's designed to kind of go out a little way. So I kind of mapped the story out to being about six arcs, maybe five to six arcs, each arc mm -hmm. focusing a little bit on, on one of the characters so that through each oh, arc, nice. you get a little bit of a backstory, more building on each of the characters. Issue one is, is pretty much, you know, finishing up now. Issue two will start crowdfunding. I'm planning in either late February or early March. Uh, my goal is to do a book a quarter uh, with my personal schedule and, and my work schedule. I think that that's probably a fair way to do it and still keep the work at a high quality without rushing it, especially doing all the roles myself. I definitely have to manage the time carefully, but uh, issue two will start crowdfunding in February, March, and that will build obviously on the story that's being told right now in issue one. So uh, it kind of ends on a bit of a cliffhanger and we'll start to see that cliffhanger resolved in issue two. That's excellent. All right, guys, zcomicsoriginal.com. Make sure you guys head over there. Links are going to be in the description. Go ahead and follow them on social media too so you can get those updates. Thank you very much for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Big fan of the show. Happy to finally be on. Excellent, excellent. All right, guys, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for hanging out. Bye.